0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I'd invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 8, This morning we'll give attention to Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. Luke writes, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes and he had... And not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and he fell down before him. And he said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of him. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. But now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission, and then the demons came out of the man, and they entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down a steep bank into a lake, or into the lake, and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus, and they found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of sur- the surrounding country of the garrisons asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and he returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, "Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you." And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to this remarkable encounter in your life and ministry, and we're reminded in very vivid language that this world in which we live, the world that we can see, hear, smell, and touch is not the only world that there is. There is a spiritual realm that is real, There are angels, and there are fallen angels. And Lord, as we look at this, we're reminded that we're not to be ignorant of these things. We're not to live in ignorance, and we're not to live in fear, for you're with us. And Lord, as we think about this man that you encountered on this particular day, we're reminded in some part of what it's like to be lost, and in some way we were all just like this man until we experienced the incredible, redeeming power of your grace, until you met us in our sin, in our confusion, and in our rebellion. You opened our eyes to the truth of who you are, the Son of God, come to save. You opened our eyes to our own sinful hearts. You drew us to yourself. You drew us to repentance and to belief, and we believed, and we bowed before you and entrusted our lives to you, and you redeemed us. You brought sanity into our madness. You opened our eyes and our ears to the truth in the midst of a world of lies. You forgave our sin and you redeemed our souls. We celebrate salvation that you bring this morning, Lord Jesus. As we see it, sort of in vivid color in this encounter you had, open our eyes to this truth. If there's someone here this morning who does not know you as Lord and Savior, open their eyes to who you are. And may they run to you and find hope and salvation everlasting. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's been quite a day in the life of Jesus and his disciples. Last week, we saw just immediately preceding this text uh, what had occurred in their life, this this trip across the Sea of Galilee, that did not go uh, particularly smoothly for anyone involved with the exception of Jesus. And Luke here tells us that immediately upon coming to shore Uh, Following this storm on the sea, they're immediately confronted by a demonized man. And we're introduced really quickly here to the idea that there is a a world that's beyond this world. That there is a such thing as angels and demons. We've encountered this already once in Luke. If you recall back in Luke chapter 4, we were studying. Jesus entered a synagogue on, on a Sabbath, and he was there. In the midst of a synagogue and right in the middle of a church service, a a demon screamed out from within one of the congregants who had gathered in that space on that particular morning. And Jesus cast that demon out of him right in the middle of a church service. But here we have something a little different, in some ways similar, in some ways different. But we're reminded again that there is this reality of another world that exists that isn't perceived through our sight and through our sound and through our hearing and through our taste and through our touch. There are beings, angels, and demons that are real yet unperceivable. That They are active in ways that we don't comprehend and fully understand, that we can't necessarily see or know. But at times they, they, they do make themselves known throughout the scriptures we see this time and again. And when we think about demons, and we think about demonology, and we think about Satan, and all these things related to this, there are, there are two errors, I think, that are really common. And I mention this about every time that I talk about this issue. Two errors that are really common. Error number one is, is folks having too little emphasis on the reality of angels and demons. The folks who just live in this oblivious state as though this world is all that there is as though there is no other world as though angels and demons are not real as though the only things that, that matter are the things that we can see that are that are sort of earthly if you will living in pure ignorance to the fact that that there are real forces that are at war and that our souls are really a part of hanging in the balance in that war the other Error is too much emphasis on demons and Satan and demonology. This can often become, in the lives of believers, an obsession where they're just obsessed with demons and obsessed with the things that are satanic. And it becomes something that is an overriding sort of a desire to know more and to learn more and to sort of piece together and to fill in the gaps where Scripture doesn't really fill in the the gaps. There are entire ministries, in fact, set up. To, to do nothing other than try to explain to you more detail than what the Bible gives about demons and Satan and so on and so forth. Strategies for warfare and things that you ought to do in order to protect yourselves from demons. There's no shortage of those in the Christian world. And on the internet, you can find one at the uh, well-purchased uh, uh, web address, demonbuster.com. You can find all sorts of interesting factoids on demonbuster.com, a supposedly Christian site. Uh, one interesting factoid that you can find on that website is this, and I quote, Boyce and Boyce are two demons that interfere with any electronic equipment, i.e. phones, computers, printers, automobiles. If something malfunctions, command these two demons by name to leave your equipment in the name of Jesus. We get any, many emails saying that this worked. If it doesn't work, then demons are not causing the problem. (laughs) This is helpful information. The next time your iPhone doesn't cooperate, if you read a little further down on demonbuster.com, they, they have a, a model prayer for you and I and for anyone else to, to pray, they say, on a daily basis. And, and this is the prayer that we're told we are to pray on a daily basis. In the name of Jesus, I cover myself. And the one reading this with the blood of Jesus, I ask for giant warrior angels to protect us as your war club and weapons of war I break down undam and blow up all walls of protection around all witches warlocks wizards Satanists sorcerers and the like and I break the power of all curses hexes vexes spells charms fetishes psychic prayers psychic thoughts witchcraft sorcery sorcery magic voodoo, all mind control, jinxes, potions, bewitchments, death, destruction, sickness, pain, torment, psychic power, psychic warfare, prayer chains, incense, and candle burning, incantations, chanting, blessings, hoodoo, crystals, root works, and everything else being sent my way, if that wasn't comprehensive enough, or my family's way, or any deliverance ministry's way, and I return it and the demons to the sender sevenfold, and I bind it to them by the blood of Jesus, and I cut and burn their ungodly silver cord and lay lines in Jesus' name. Now, I have no idea what any of that means whatsoever. None, I mean, it's completely and utterly incomprehensible to anything that's remotely biblical. It just sounds bizarre. My favorite quote from demonbuster.com was this, and this tells you really what you need to know, and this is a quote. Know this, everyone has demons, especially Christians. There's no scripture that says this, it's just a matter of fact. There's no scripture that says you do not have demons. Jesus said that demons are living inside of you, not outside. Jesus said that the demons call your body their house. Do you live outside your house? Neither do demons. That's just fantastic. There's no scripture that says this, and yet Jesus says this. How would one know? Apparently they know this at demonbuster.com. I mean, this is just pure nonsense, as you can imagine, right? This is ridiculous, all of it. Insane, really. It's an insane obsession with something that one ought not be obsessed with, and one becomes obsessed with it, you end up in all sorts of fantasy and fallacy and foolishness like this. As a believer, we have no no reason to pursue such things. Really, Christ is our model. We don't see Jesus ever in the Gospels uh, pursuing demons or chasing demons or looking for demons or trying to sort these things out. We see him going about his ministry of seeking and saving the lost. And occasionally, uh, when he's on that mission, he runs into moments like he did on the Sea of Galilee in Luke chapter 8, and when he encounters it, he addresses it, deals with it, and moves on about the ministry that he was primarily about, seeking and saving the lost. And so as believers, we wanna be careful as we think about these things. We wanna not provide in our minds and hearts too little emphasis to where we pretend it isn't real, but on the other hand, we don't wanna be fooled by nonsense like this or for people who push nonsense like this, trying to tell us things that are extra biblical. We have here in Luke chapter eight, a biblical account of a real encounter with a real group of demons and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find all sorts of fascinating things in this text. Luke introduces us really at the very beginning in verse 26 to what amounts to a madman. It says they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes opposite of Galilee. And when Jesus stepped on a the land there met him, a man from the city who had demons. Now, in case you're wondering where the country of the Gerasenes is, in case you're not up on your Middle Eastern geography... Uh, The Sea of Galilee, we talked about this a little bit last week, showed you a little bit of a flyover, but we can show you a little bit of a a map here that gives you a sense for what we're talking about in relation to where Jesus and the disciples were prior to this event. They were up near Capernaum, uh, sort of where the top of that red and green line meets there. Um, It's where they set sail from on the Sea of Galilee. They encounter the storm on the sea, and they make their way across the sea over here to the other shore, uh, you see on the map there a town labeled um, Gergesa. And it's there that they, that they come to shore on the back end of this particular storm. It's on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. If you're reading this in the Gospels, um, you'll find that this area is referred to by a number of different names. Sometimes it's called here, uh, like here, the country of the Gerasenes. Um, it's, it's also referred to as the Decapolis now, if you were to look in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew calls this the, the area of the Gadarenes. And so uh, uh, it may be a little confusing trying to understand where this is, but you can just sort of summarize this by saying um, that Matthew really is dealing with the larger area, area that's often just goes by the name the Gadarenes because Gadara is not far from there, perhaps even the capital of the region And that's just referring to that larger region. Also, Decapolis refers to that larger region. Uh, More specifically, this particular town, Geras is right there on the sea, and so Luke is referring to the particular location rather than to the region when he says the, the country of the Gerasenes. This is a Gentile region, and so Jesus has now moved from a Jewish, primarily Jewish, ministry that he's carried out up to this point across to a Gentile area, a land that is populated largely by Gentiles, and he encounters them here really in a a remarkable sort of a way Uh, it is really the first and as far as we can tell biblically the only visit that jesus makes to this entire region is on this particular account and we're told that he's met there immediately by uh, a man who is has many demons now if you're reading the gospel of mark and the gospel of of Matthew who both record this particular event You'll find in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 28, Matthew tells us another fact about this particular event. He tells us that when Jesus came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, there were two demon possessed men who met him. So the question becomes is there one, was there one, or were there two demoniacs that, that met them on this day? I think the most likely answer to that is there were likely two who were present, one who did primarily. The, the sort of encounter with Jesus, one who spoke on behalf of them all. And so Luke and Mark focus on that particular man. Matthew enlightens us by telling us there was another man in similar situation who was also present, both possessed by demons. Now, what does it mean to be possessed by demons? Well, here's a good definition that I think works. Demon possession is really just a condition in which one or more demons inhabit the body of a human being with the purpose of controlling it. It's a good description of what had taken place in the life of of this, this man or perhaps these two men on this particular day in this particular place. In this particular situation we have a man who is utterly demon possessed. He is under complete and total demonic control. He literally has no control of his own person. We're not told in the text at all how he got into this condition, how it happened to him. We're just simply confronted with the reality that in every way, spiritually, mentally, physically, he is utterly dominated and controlled by demons. They control his voice. They control his speech. It's as though he's nothing but a puppet in his own life. This man is living a life of, of utter misery, and he has for a long time. His life, you could say, is an absolute living horror show for anyone to look at. He's alive and he's conscious, and he's absolutely controlled by demons. I can't imagine a worse condition to be in than the condition that this man finds himself in. I want to pause and sort of answer some questions about this issue because there are issues, there are questions that come to my attention from folks fairly regularly when this issue comes up, this issue of demons and Satan and demon possession. What are demons, and what powers do they possess, and can they possess Christians, and, and so on and so forth. Let me give you a quick few answers to those questions as sort of an aside before we continue with the text. What, what, are, what are demons? Well, the Bible tells us demons are they're fallen angels that, that joined Satan in his rebellion in eternity past, and, and they were judged by God along with Satan, cast out of heaven, cast down to earth. They are fallen angels. They have all the same sort of attributes that, that unfallen angels have. Though they are allied with Satan, they're his accomplices in, in his scheme to, to, to kill, to steal, and to destroy anything and everything they can affect in God's creation. Though they quite often present themselves as angels of light, their true aim is always death, destruction, destruction. And decay, and anything the demons are a part of will ultimately find that kind of a fate. Demons cannot touch God directly, but they can certainly wreak havoc on His creation. And the evidence of that is all around for those who are paying attention. We don't know a whole lot about demons beyond that. We know that there, we can at least infer that there is some sort of structure as far as their levels of power and authority. In Mark chapter nine, we have an account. Where where uh, a man brings his, his demonized son uh, to Jesus, and the, the the disciples had tried to cast out this particular demon, and they had had no success, and Jesus cast him out. and And after this happens, uh, they they went indoors, and the disciples asked him privately in Mark chapter nine, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus said, they this kind come out by only by prayer. There was some ability that to to. to to uh, sort of cast out this particular demon that Jesus had that his disciples did not. In Daniel chapter 10, we won't dwell there, uh, Daniel is visited by an angel from the Lord, and this angel is in conversation with Daniel in Daniel chapter 10, and he tells him that he would, was, was planning to have arrived to Daniel earlier, he says, but, uh, but but some things happened along the way. He said, I've come in, uh, in response to some things, but the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days then Michael one of the chief princes came to help me because I was detained there by the king of Persia we don't have any idea what all that specifically means but it certainly means that this angel was deployed to deliver a message to Daniel and he encountered demonic resistance along the way which required assistance from the angel Michael in some regards so what do we make of all that who knows can't say much more beyond that other than to say that's what we know we don't really have any further information about this, so to try to take it further than that is just to go into the sort of the land of, of conjecture. But that's, who, that's what demons are. That's what demons are. They're spiritual beings. They, they're not limited by time. They're not limited by space. They're not limited uh, by form. However, they're not omnipresent like God is. They're not everywhere at once. They can only be in one place at one time. But because they're spiritual beings, they're not perceived by us unless they want to be perceived by us. They're powerful beings. In Second Peter chapter two verse eleven, Peter tells us that, that the angels are greater in power and might than men. The psalmist says something very similar in Psalm one o three, where he says angels excel in strength. One example: Second Kings chapter nineteen verse thirty five. One holy angel slew one hundred eighty five thousand men in the Assyrian army in a moment. Men are no match for angels in power. Only the power of God Almighty can command them. There are people in our world and in our culture who like to dabble in the occult and they think that they can manipulate and they think that they can control the demonic, and they're absolute fools to try to do so. To do so is to do so at your own demise. People who do so are playing with forces they do not understand. and will likely be destroyed well as we see in this text they can possess unbelievers that's for sure they can possess unbelievers we see this throughout the text of scripture there are different kinds of possession we what we see here is a total possession of a human being we're told in John chapter 13 verse 12 that Judas after he took some bread Satan entered into him Jesus says to him what you do do quickly it's a different kind of possession to a different degree. In some cases, demons control only the thoughts and desires. In other cases, like this one, demons consume the whole person. But demons cannot possess Christians. That question I'm asked often. Absolutely not. One of the fundamental parts of coming to Christ and, and, and entrusting our lives to him, one of the fundamental things that happens at the moment of salvation is we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit, comes to abide within us Christ in us by his spirit and he's not Airbnb and part of our souls to demons if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior the spirit of God lives within you and no demon can find a home in you but this man was not a believer he did not have the spirit of God indwelling him he had Demons he was under complete control no ability to resist it was his life was a living nightmare Listen to the description of of, of what it, what had become of this man at one point We presume that he was a normal man. I mean you look around this room. Just go ahead look around it Just gives your neck some exercise and you look around you see all these lovely people men and women in the room They all look wonderful like normal You know situated people this man at one point looked like the people in this room But on this day, he's nothing like you. We're told he's naked. He hasn't put on clothes for a very long time. This man has lived in complete exposure and all the shame associated with that. I mean, we wear clothing for a reason, right? We don't run around naked, and there's a reason we don't do that. There are multiple reasons why we don't do that, probably. (laughs) Multiple reasons. At least one of which is that's shameful. It would be shameful to do that. You don't do that. Normal, sane people don't do that, but this man is not sane, and he has no sense of shame because all that's been stripped away by these demons, and he has not worn clothes in a very long time. Not only that, but he's had no protection from the elements and the bugs and everything else. completely naked for a long time, filthy. He's homeless. Whatever family he once had, that that's been he's been driven out of that home long long ago Uh, he most certainly was not welcomed in this condition to any family he had no friends he had no friends and and certainly no family who admit any association with this particular man he was really utterly alone in every sense apart from perhaps another crazed maniac that was hanging around with him he lived in the tombs we're told i mean is there a creepier place to live than a cemetery their cemeteries were a little different than ours, their, the tombs were usually carved into the, to the stone walls of cliffs and such, and so they would often have multiple rooms where you'd bury multiple family members, and so the spaces that were unoccupied, if you will, by a dead corpse would potentially be open, and so presumably that's the space that this man had been living in. He was more at home among the dead than he was among the living. More comfortable in a tomb than in a house. Beyond that, he had inhuman strength. He was such an absolute menace to society in that whole region that we're told that, that the authorities had tried on multiple occasions to come and restrain this man. They had likely gathered up a posse and, and tried to, to capture him and had done so on some occasions, chained him up, shackled him up with chains and so forth. But every single time you saw what happens. This man bust out of the shackles and the chains. There are no no chains. There are no shackles that can hold him. He has strength that no mere human would have. Mark 5 tells us that he had become so violent and so powerful that nobody could subdue him. Beyond that, Matthew tells us that he was so fierce in his behavior and so violent in his actions toward other people that nobody could literally pass through that entire area because of him. Everybody would have known about this man. Everybody would have known about him. Beyond all of that, he was in constant pain. Mark tells us in verse 5 of chapter 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Can you imagine the city folks who lived in the nearby cities at night? You know, it's not the stars or the crickets or anything else that you hear. You hear this man screeching and screaming in the distance and shrieking, literally cutting himself with stones the demons have driven him to absolute self-harm. This man is an absolute, absolutely pitiful, horrifying sight. It seems to me that death would be better than that kind of an existence. And yet there was absolutely no end to his misery. He had been in this condition for a long time, and if ever there was a hopeless cause, it's this man. No ability to help himself, Nobody else could apparently do anything to bring him any relief or any help. He was an absolute lost and hopeless man. What a sight he must have been. Jesus and the disciples were told they, 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 they hit the shore, and immediately after they get out of the boat, they're met by this man. So literally, if you could just picture this in your mind, they've just come off of this event on the, the storm on the sea, and they pull up to the shore. And immediately when they hit the, the shore, This this naked, crazy man comes running out of the tomb, screaming at the top of his lungs in their direction. You can imagine the disciples' reaction to that. I mean, they've had one heck of a trip across the sea. They were scared to death, fighting for their life in the middle of a storm. They, they thought they were going to absolutely die for sure. They see Jesus wake up, rub the sleep out of his eyes, tell the storm to settle down, and it settles down. They see his power on display, and they're absolutely horrified now, not of the storm, but of Jesus. They pull up on the shore, probably still dripping wet from it all, and now this crazed maniac is running at him, screaming. think you've had a bad day this week that's a bad day are you kidding me could this day get any more bizarre but this man comes running and he he comes right up to Jesus and he speaks to him falls down before him he assumes this position of, of submission he bows before him now this is important because literally no human we're told could even pass by this entire region no human could subdue this man no human could restrain this man no human could do anything other than avoid this man, yet in the presence of Jesus, he bows on his face immediately. He knows immediately that he's in the presence of someone who is no ordinary man. He's in the presence of the divine. And Luke tells us that he literally screams at him, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Screams at the top of his lungs probably foaming at his mouth and other things that happen when demons manifest. One thing is clear. He immediately knows exactly who Jesus is. He knows who he is. The irony is that just a little while earlier, the disciples are out on the middle of the sea and they watch Jesus calm the storm and they're terrified and what they're asking each other is this, who then is this that, that he commands even the winds and the water and they bam! They're trying to figure out who Jesus is. They don't know who he is. They haven't made sense of it yet. They're bewildered at Jesus' identity. They couldn't figure out from the miracles but what they couldn't figure out from the miracles, the demon just comes right out and tells them straight up. Listen, people might be confused about who Jesus is, but the demons are not confused about who Jesus is, never. James chapter two, verse 19, James writes, you believe that there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. You're son of the most high God. They've known Jesus from eternity past. They have no trouble recognizing him in his incarnation. What everybody else seems to have trouble figuring out, they are not confused about one bit. He is God, the son in human flesh, Lord of heaven and earth, the one who has all authority and all power, even over them. This demon or these demons, they know Jesus' authority. They recognize immediately that his authority far outranks their own. He's the God and judge of the universe. And they bow before him just like one day every single knee will do in all of creation. They know that he has the authority to command them and they must obey. They know that he has the authority to cast them into eternal torment with a word. Which is apparently what they're particularly concerned about at this particular time. Because this demon not only knows Jesus' authority, but he knows his own destiny. which is to be thrown into the abyss. Abyss is an Old Testament term used to describe by Old Testament Jews as the place of the dead. Literally translates bottomless pit. We don't have time to go into all the eschatology of all this, but just sort of as a a couple of statements about it, these demons understand that it's not the end of time. They understand that their destiny is the abyss. They understand that judgment is coming and there is no escape, but they do know at this particular moment that it's not the end times yet and it's not time. That is really the genesis of their initial question. All of the activity of Satan and the demons is going to one day climax at the end of time in what's called the Great Tribulation. And after that, they're gonna be thrown into an abyss for a thousand years during the millennial reign of Christ, and after a, a brief release on the tail end of that, they'll be judged eternally and thrown into the lake of fire. You can read all about it in Revelation chapter 20. So the spokesman for these demons, he begs Jesus for mercy not to torment him. He knows it's not the final judgment, but he, doesn't, he knows Jesus has the ability to, to judge him immediately. He doesn't challenge his authority in any way. He simply begs for mercy. We're told Jesus' responds to him, and he asks for some ID. What's your name? To which he only replies, Legion. Legion isn't his proper name. He's giving a description of what's going on. It's a Roman military term, which stood for a Roman legion, literally thousands of soldiers, perhaps up to 6,000, 6,800. Different people come up with a different number. Luke doesn't give us a particular number here, but the indication is that this man is literally infested with thousands of demons, one of whom is speaking. In the south, we might say he's eat up with demons. We don't know how many. There were 2,000 pigs, and all of them seemed to be occupied at the end of the story, so perhaps we could infer there was at least that many. They didn't want to be cast into the abyss, and so they request Jesus to cast them into the nearby herd of pigs. Now, why the herd of pigs? I don't have any idea. There are all sorts of questions about this text I don't know anything about. Why did they want to go into the pigs? I don't know. I, I can could, I could assume that they knew Jesus wasn't going to let them stay in this man, that he had every intention of kicking them out of the place that they'd been living for a while. Like every man, this man was made in the image of God. And they had perverted God's creation. And Christ was about to make that right. Maybe pigs were the only thing around. I don't know. But I know they wanted to continue their destructive activity. So they asked to be thrown into the pigs. Why does Jesus agree to do it? I have no idea. We'll ask him when we get there. What I do know is that his word, they come out of this man. They come out of this man. And they enter the pigs. First John chapter three, verse eight, John writes this, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And we see in vivid fashion one example of that here. And just like the storm in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, when Jesus speaks, the demons listen and they obey. They can do absolutely nothing apart from his permission. He has all authority over them. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, think about this for a moment. There's absolutely no reason for you to fear a demon ever. Ever. First John chapter four, verse four, John writes, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is where? Is in the world. If the spirit of God indwells you, don't need to live in fear of demons. They can do absolutely nothing apart from his permission. And he gives them permission for some reason to go into these pigs and the whole herd of pigs rushes wildly down down to the lake and drowns themselves. I mean, can you imagine that scene? 2,000 pigs, previously normal, docile pigs, just doing pig stuff, whatever pigs do. And all of a sudden, demons infest them and they are shrieking and going absolutely berserk. Can you imagine the sights, the sound, the carnage of these pigs just rushing into the lake and and drowning themselves? Why does Jesus allow this to the poor piggy piggies? I don't know. I know pigs were considered unclean by Jews, so to cast unclean spirits into unclean animals kind of makes some sense it's probably worth noting that these pigs were being raised for slaughter not as pets and so one could argue that he just brought the inevitable to the present we have incidentally some folks here who have piggy piggies that they raise for food i don't know if i can spot my friends who have that right now or not they're here i think i saw them we visited some friends from the church recently for dinner and they had pigs in the backyard, and they had names for them, ham and bacon and sausage. <laughs> that was their names. I'll let them identify themselves. And there's a reason for that, you don't make friends with your food. I learned that at that, at that visit. But that's the kind of pigs these were. These were pigs that were going to be food. They weren't people's pets, and so we don't need... Um, to, to get up in arms about that but why jesus did that i don't particularly know i think probably the most reasonable thing is to say the reason jesus did this is it served as a very vivid confirmation that the demons came out of that man if anybody wanted to question whether or not the exorcism actually worked they had a a, a living illustration to show them that it worked one minute, the pigs are normal pigs, and the next minute, they're going berserk and drowning themselves in the lake. One minute, the man is a, an absolute madman maniac, and the next minute, he's a perfectly normal from all outward appearances man who's in his right mind. Nobody would have been unclear about what just happened. Nobody would have questioned what took place on that shore that day. Well, it terrified the herdsman. <clears throat> Probably would have terrified you too if you'd seen it. They fled and they, they told it in the city and the country. I mean, these men, they take off running. They hightail it out of there. They don't want any part of whatever's going on there. And they've just lost their entire flock of pigs too. So I don't know if pigs are a flock. Maybe it's something else, but you can correct me on that later. But they take off and they run to the country and to the city. Anybody they run into, they have got the gossip of the century, man. They have got a story that nobody else has. And they're telling everybody who'll listen. They're absolutely terrified. It would have quickly, this event, become the talk of the town. And as people are hearing the story and the story spreading throughout people, people are now running out to the, to the shore to see what went on for themselves. And when they get there, they're absolutely stunned by what they find. They see an unbelievable, undeniable transformation that's taken place and this utterly hopeless cause man. This man who had been naked and homeless and terrifying a madman for so long is now sitting calmly at Jesus' feet. He's taken up the position of a disciple at the feet of Jesus. He's fully clothed for the first time in a very long time. And he's in his right mind, no longer controlled by demons. That would have been an absolutely jaw-dropping moment for all of these people. They would have never dreamed that that kind of transformation could take place in that kind of a man. Everybody would have thought he was way too far gone. And yet here he is. What do you do with that? What kind of sense can you make of that? Well, it's a visual picture of what takes place in salvation every time it takes place Every unbeliever, to a lesser degree, is just like this man. Under satanic control, blind to the truth, corrupt in his thoughts, living a shameful, destructive life, unable, absolutely unable, to save himself or herself. That is the condition of every unbeliever before they come to Christ. But after coming to Christ and repenting and believing the gospel and entrusting our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, immediately we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We come under divine control. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Our minds are sanctified, and we now possess the mind of Christ. We're able to hear and able to comprehend the word of God. We're in a a real sense in our right mind. We have a whole new way of thinking. His word begins to transform us. Every time the gospel takes root in a human heart, the transformation that takes place in the soul is the same transformation that took place in this poor man's soul. J.C. Ryle, Anglican bishop, says this, Never is a man in his right mind till he's converted, or in his right place till he sits by faith at the feet of Jesus, or rightly clothed till he's put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, real conversion is nothing else but the miraculous release of a captive, the miraculous restoration of a man to his right mind, the miraculous deliverance of a soul from the devil. And that's what we see in vivid color in this poor man. And this crowd can't deny what's happened. They can't explain it, but they can't deny it. And their response is probably the saddest part of the entire account. They respond with two things, fear and indifference. On the one hand, they're terrified by what they see because they know everybody that they know has tried to control this man and nobody has had any luck. In fact, their only recourse has been to avoid him and now he sits there perfectly normal. Somehow because of the power of this man, Jesus, is standing in front of them and they're terrified. They're terrified at his power. But that terror doesn't draw them to him. What they do in response to recognizing his power is very simple and very sad. They just ask him to leave. They ask him to leave. They don't debate him. They don't argue with him. They don't ridicule him. They don't persecute him. they just ask him to leave they're totally indifferent really to who he is or where he's come from or what he can do for them they literally don't care if he's the Messiah or what power he has and whether he's from God or not they just want him gone they just want him gone he stirred up something in the midst of their normal lives and they don't like the stirring up and they want things just to go back to normal so they just tell him to go away That's been the same kind of indifference, the same kind of apathy that's been shown by most men in the history of the world in which you and I live. When confronted with the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and what he brings and who they are in light of him, those people really just respond the same way. They just want him to go away, to leave them alone. They don't want to be bothered. Jesus does exactly what they asked him to do. He gets in his boat and he leaves. And nowhere in scripture do we have any indication that he ever returned to this place again. One author said this, sometimes the worst thing that can happen to us is for Jesus to grant one of our poorly considered requests. And that's exactly what happened to the people of this region who had come out to meet him on this particular day. God had come to them in person, and he had showed himself to them in in miraculous, undeniable ways, and they rejected him and asked him to go away. They forfeited an opportunity to be saved, and an opportunity like that would never afford itself again in their lives, at least not that way. Indifference to the gospel of Jesus Christ is incredibly dangerous to the soul. no doubt the bulk of the folks who came to witness Jesus on that particular day found out in the most horrifying way when they breathed their last breath and slipped out into an eternity to only reflect on the fact that the the Lord of the universe had come to redeem them and they told him to go away well the account ends this way Luke tells us, the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This man begged to go with Jesus and you and I wouldn't blame him, right? That's the natural response to that kind of a thing. Christ transforms you and you just can't get enough. You wanna be with him and wherever he goes, you wanna be where he is and you wanna learn more. Well, you've tasted a little bit, you want more. That's what this guy does, he wants more of Jesus and he wants to go anywhere Jesus goes. I'm sure secondarily though, in the back of his mind, he's got a reputation in this town and his community like everybody has seen him and known him for a really long time. And that's gonna be a hard one to overcome. But Jesus says, nope, you're gonna stay here. And even in this is the remarkable grace of Christ, isn't it? These people have asked him to go away. They don't want any part of him, and he does that, but he leaves behind a witness, a witness, this man. And no question about it, any time anybody in that area ever saw this man, they would be reminded of what happened on that shore that day, and the undeniable power of Jesus Christ to transform a human life. He says to him, nope, you stick around. I don't need you on the foreign mission field, I need you on the home mission field. You just spend your time going around and telling everybody how much God's done for you. Just tell them how much God's done for you. This man knew enough to be saved, he knew enough to be a missionary. And so Jesus commissions him. What does he do? He went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. He did just what Jesus told him to do. He did what everybody who's been redeemed by the blood of Christ ought to do. He did what everybody who's experienced the transforming power of Christ in their life who's been redeemed, who's been forgiven, who's been set free from their sin, who's been indwelled by the Spirit of God, who's experienced redemption and sanctification, who's, rede- who's experienced all of the blessings and joys that come with saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What every person who has experienced that should do is tell anybody and everybody who will listen how much God has done for you. And that serves as a re- tremendous challenge for people like us who are very busy who are very busy talking about other things and doing other things. Just as a challenge, a simple question, when was the last time that you spoke to somebody else and told them how much God has done for you? Perhaps we're derelict in our responsibility in this regard, huh? Perhaps we've forgotten how much God has done for us perhaps we don't truly appreciate how much God has truly done for us. Particularly if we don't think it's important enough to share with somebody else. This particular man was under no illusion about how much God had done for him. None whatsoever. He was hopeless and he had nothing. He was living a li- His life was a living horror show. A movie that you and I couldn't go watch because of the rating it would be. And in a moment, he was perfectly normal, redeemed by Christ. He had a lot that he could tell about how much Christ had done for him. And I guarantee you, if you had met this man in that city, from that moment until he breathed his last breath, you probably would have heard him talking about nothing other than that. Because when you truly experience the transformation of Christ, you can't help but tell somebody else you want it for the people around you. Our time's up. Let me just give you a quick, some quick takeaways. I think these are pretty obvious, but just to sort of some thoughts to hang your, your hat on at the end. We address this at the beginning. Satan and demons are not to be toyed with or feared. We don't, we don't play around with the occult, but we certainly don't live in fear of it. Secondly, Jesus is God in human flesh. That's what Luke has been driving all throughout his gospel to this point. He wants Theophilus, the man for whom he's writing this, and anybody who reads it in, in the, the rest of human history to understand this is who Jesus Christ is. He is not just a man, he is God in human flesh. And he showed us how he has all authority over the wind and the waves and the storm, and now he shows us that he can do what only God can do, command demons and they must obey. There's nobody else that can do that, only God. And Christ is God in human flesh. If he can redeem and restore this man, he can redeem and restore anybody. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you look at your own life, and you, you think, man, I've, I've done some awful things. You know, my life has gone all sorts of ways. I've lived in terrible rebellion against the Lord. I'm not sure he'll forgive me. I'm not sure he can fix what's broken in me. This man stands as a living testimony that there's nobody that's beyond the reach of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nobody who's too far gone that Christ can't redeem. Wherever you are, whatever you've done, come to the Lord Jesus Christ, bow before him, confess your sin, and trust your life to him and he will save you, he will redeem you, he will transform you. From what you are into something glorious. There's nobody that's beyond his reach. And then, two quick last thoughts rejecting the gospel is dangerous. These folks rejected Christ, and apart from the testimony of this demoniac, they never had the opportunity to see him and hear from him again. Listen, my friends, there's a reason why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. That the moment you hear the gospel is the moment you need to repent and trust Christ because we're not guaranteed a tomorrow. And to push it away today is dangerous because we're not told when we'll breathe our last breath. And finally, we're all called to declare how much God has done for us. If you're a Christian here this morning and you understand the transformative power of Christ in your life because he's redeemed you, you've got a story to tell. You don't need theological training. You don't need to come to a class at this church to train you on what to do or what to say or how to handle every objection. This man had none of that stuff. He knew what it was to be saved, so he knew enough to tell somebody else. And so do you. So do I. Find somebody this week. Tell them how much God has done for you. Somebody needs to hear that in your world. Somebody who's caught in satanic grip, whether they know it or not, needs to hear that in your world. Somebody whose mind is captive to the enemy needs to hear all the good God has done for you. Somebody who's lost and living in shameful and ungodly ways and destructive ways needs to hear that there's another way to live, that God can do good things for them. And maybe you're the only person in their circle who can tell them. Won't you go tell them? What's the risk? Why the fear? Let's pray. Jesus, we're amazed more and more by you every time we open up our Bibles and read. Even in our Imagination as we stretch it, we can't even come close to imagining what that scene was like on that particular day that Luke records. The condition of this pathetic man. And yet your love and your mercy upon him. Your grace to expel a legion of demons from inside of him and restore him to sanity and to salvation. To make a disciple of a demoniac. To make a missionary out of a madman. It's just simply astonishing. We don't even have a category for that in our minds. Nobody that we know can do things like that. Because nobody we know is God. But you are. And we confess you as that this morning, Lord Jesus. And Lord, we, those of us who who know you as Lord and Savior, we see in ourselves a bit of this madman. We know what it looks like to be lost don't know what it necessarily means to be demonized, but we know what it's like to have our minds darkened and lives that are a mess, behaviors that are shameful, minds that can't think straight, lives that are just a wreck. And we know what it means to be transformed by your power. Lord, help us never to lose the wonder of what you've done for us. Help us never to be amazed by your grace that would save people like us. When you could have left us in our state, you loved us. You showed yourself to us and you redeemed us. Forgive us, Lord, for not telling others how good you've been to us. Forgive us for occupying our speech with so many other trivial things that really don't matter. I pray for my friends and for myself this morning, Lord, as we wrap this up, that you would even now place in our minds somebody in our world that needs to hear all the good things you've done for us. That perhaps even through that they might come to know you. Compel us to go. Compel us to speak. Overcome our fears and give us boldness. For you have been so good to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.